Hi, and welcome to the Innovation Game, a podcast by the IP law firm Potter Clarkson. My name's Rich Wells, and today we're going to be talking about the Unitary Patent and the Unified Patent Court. I'm joined by Dave Carling, partner and patent attorney in the Pharma Life Sciences Group, and Graham McCullum, a partner and a, uh, patent attorney who works in computing electronics and with investors. Firstly, it's important to put a bit of a, a, a timestamp on this podcast. I know normally our podcasts are fairly timeless, but the UP and UPC, which we're talking about today, is a bit of a fast moving juggernaut. So just to note, this is recorded mid-July 2022 and things may have moved on by the time you listen to it. So to start with, we live in a world of acronyms. UP, UPC, what's it mean? Dave, do you want to take um, UP first? Okay, uh, UP is the the unitary patent. Uh, this is a, a brand new patent right. It's a single patent right that covers uh, anywhere between 17 and we think about up to 24 countries in Europe, depending on the date on which it's granted. It's going to live or die across all of those countries in one go. So it's quite different from the existing European patent system. Um, we can certainly get on to uh, the details of that a little later on. But yes, it's a single patent right coming out of the European Patent Office. Okay, cheers, Dave. And over to you, Graeme, for the UPC. What's that? Thanks, Rich. The UPC is the Unified Patent Court, and this is a new international court that has been that is in the process of being set up, um, and it will have exclusive jurisdiction to decide cases, litigation surrounding unitary patents. But importantly, it will also have jurisdiction over conventional European patents as well. So patents that have already been granted and nationally validated in individual countries. Um, these will fall within the jurisdiction of the Unified Patent Court, the UPC as well, um, unless you take the opportunity to opt these out. Okay, and uh, we're going to talk in in a bit more detail about all what the, all, all, what this means for for applicants of uh, in Europe and patentees. Uh, but this is obviously not started yet. What is the timeline that we're working to here? When's it expected to start? When do people need to to, yeah. to make decisions? Um, Graham, have you got got any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there was quite timely, Rich, um, but there was a, um, a meeting of the UPC um, Administrative Council, I think, last week, and they have given that the latest indication of when the the UPC and the UP are due to start is likely to be early 2023. Um, so. Previously, it had been a bit vaguer. They'd been talking about end of this year, possibly early next year. But it seems to be that it looks now as if it's unlikely to happen this year. It looks like it's likely to come into effect early 2023 with the sunrise period starting roughly three months before that. OK, um, we might talk about it in a bit more detail later. But you mentioned the sunrise period. What does this mean for people who want to use use these these schemes? So the sunrise period um, will start when Germany deposits its ratification and will last for um, just over three months from when Germany deposits its ratification. And the sunrise period is primarily gives 
applicants, proprietors, the opportunity to opt their patents out of the UPC. So this would be their nationally validated European patents to opt them out of the UPC um, jurisdiction prior to the UPC coming into effect, which would prevent other parties um, challenging their patents by filing for applications for revocation on day one of when the UPC comes into effect. OK, so Dave, if you've got any thoughts on this, it, it seems that whilst the the UP, UPC schemes will start the turn of the year, decisions need to be made sooner than that. Absolutely, they do. I mean, one of the things that has always struck me through this process as, as the law's been developed is it is a change to the status quo for all patent holders. I mean, usually when laws change, you know that if you do nothing, things will carry on as they are. But this is very much the opposite to that. If you do nothing and you're a patent holder, your patents are now put into the system and they become vulnerable to revocation at the UPC. If you don't like that concept, you have to be proactive. You have to opt out okay. and, and to secure your sort of that guarantee of not being vulnerable to revocation centrally. You want to take action during that sunrise period. So there's obviously the two parts of this. There's the Unitary Patent, the UP, and the Unified Patents Court, the UPC. Both of these will need to be considered. Um, diving into the UPC first, Graham, we briefly talked about opting in and out, but what's the pros and cons of this? What what does it mean for, for applicants and patentees? Um, thanks, Rich. Well, the, the advantage, the pros of, of opting out is that your patent, your national European patent validation will not be subject to the jurisdiction of the UPC. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, you might want to do that to, um, to take your patents out, especially valuable ones, um, until you see how the UPC develops, how the case law develops. And I think it's important to note that this is a new court, it's a new international institution. Um, nobody quite knows how it's going to operate in practice. Um, the judges um, and the combinations of the judges aren't really that well known. There will be some judges that come from countries that don't have a long history of patent litigation um, and will need to go through training. Um, <clears throat> there is also not going to be when the court starts, there will not be any case law established either. So the court system from day one is going to have to start to establish its own case law. And for that reason as well, um, because there is no jurisprudence when the court starts, proprietors may wish to take a back seat and see how the case law and the court develops in practice before deciding whether or not to, to participate or deciding when to participate. Um, now, the downside of opting everything out is that you obviously you're not involved in the court, you don't get experience of how the court operates and you don't have an opportunity to shape the case law either. Um, whereas if you don't opt out, if you keep your patents in that system, then you're going to have more opportunity to be involved in the case law um, and to shape the court as it develops. Again, we talk talking about, say, uh, a pan-European revocation as being a possibility at the court if you're a patentee. But I guess there's the advantage as well as of, of having relief that spans the whole of the jurisdiction, such as an injunction. Is, is that correct? 
Yeah, yes, that's absolutely correct, Rich. I mean, one of the, the downsides of the court for a patent proprietor is that um, <clears throat> there is the potential to have a pan-European revocation action so that the whole of your European patent, at least for the UPC member states, goes in one fell swoop. But the upside, the other side of the coin, is that you also have the opportunity as a patent proprietor to get pan-European injunctions, pan-European relief um, across all the UPC member states in one go as well. So it's, it's not purely a, a box ticking, ticking exercise, is it? There's it's not one size fits all. There's a lot of things to consider. The commercial sort of reality of things, the appetite of risk is, uh, that you may have as a applicant or patentee, and also potentially the field in which you're in. So, Dave, Graham, you both come from from different patent attorney worlds, and you'll be having had conversations with your clients in the pharma field, Dave, and telecommunications, Graham. Are there, are there are there trends trends emerging on on the strategies that that people you're talking to in your world are, are following? Um, Dave, um, do you want to start? Sure. From my side, there definitely are trends. Um, I work both with large pharmaceutical companies and some you know very small companies, and, and in pretty much all cases, you can very often see they have a product that just has one or two patent families around it, and these patent families are absolutely critical to the businesses absolutely critical these crown jewels of ip for them have to be protected as they see it so their appetite for risk as it were is very low they don't really want to engage with the unified patent court given all of the uncertainties that graham's just said so they are more inclined to opt out these high value patents of theirs um, that's certainly not the case for all companies are all patents that they have. I mean, the examples that I've been sort of had when I've been talking to clients have involved cases where, yes, they, they have their most important patents, which they do want to opt out, but other patents they're happy to keep in where there's lesser value because, as Graham said, they do want to help shape the case law of the court. In, in certain cases, but in more cases, it seems likely that they just want to be more familiar with the procedures, the costs and the timings, and to learn more about how it all works and how things shake down in real life. Because at the end of the day, everybody is going to be part of this once the tra transition period ends, and you have to be prepared to you know, get stuck in with uh, litigation, revocation actions and enforcement. Yeah, I suppose you don't want uh, a bad set of case law to be jeopardizing your future crown jewels if you're one of the big players, do you? I suppose that that's 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 not what you want. Like, um, so over to you, Graham. In 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 your world, uh, 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 people you're talking to taking a similar approach, or, or have they kind of got different strategies in mind. Um, very much different strategies, Rich. Um, some of the strategies are similar to the strategies Dave mentioned, but some of them are. Um, are quite the opposite um, and a lot depends on the business strategy of, of the particular client and the proprietor um, and the size of them as well. So some of telecoms clients, telecom sphere, um, they're huge companies, they have huge portfolios of standards essential patents. If you look at Qualcomm, Nokia, Ericsson, for example, Nokia um, has over 4,000 patents declared as standards essential for for 5G. Now, if you've got a portfolio of five of over 4000 essential patents, perhaps 
it's not quite so important if you lose one or two or maybe even 10 or 20 of them. And so your portfolio can withstand that. But there will be also smaller players in the telecoms field who perhaps have less standards essential patents and they'll be maybe thinking about opting them out you know there may well be um, players in there who perhaps have only 10 20 standards essential patents and you can see that in that scenario um their crown jewels um it's a much higher risk for them um to at least keep it within the upc initially and they may opt decide to opt out a lot of these cases um, so it very much depends on, I think, the business, um, the business strategy and the size of the corporate concerned. So, yeah, you, you can really see that there, there isn't one size fits all. It will very much depend on you know, the company itself. And Graham, mechanistically, we've talked about the strategy, but mechanistically, what does opting out, opting in mean? What do you have to do? Are there any costs involved? Um, the opt-out process is relatively straightforward. Um, it can all be done online and there is a bulk system um, that the UPC has enabled on their IT backend to enable to do that, to opt out a large number of cases simultaneously. So in terms of fees, Rich, um, there is no official fee for opting out and Potter Clarkson don't charge a fee for opting out for the recording the opt out provided that the the case is relatively complicated. If there are more complicated cases such as assignments or chains of title that have not been registered, then there there may well be a fee for that, and that um, makes things more complicated because the the actual proprietor needs to be checked. Yeah, I think that 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 makes sense. I guess yeah. Often with complication comes cost. I suppose the, the, the way of the world. Um, so I think that, that that's given a really good overview of the Unified Patents Court, the UPC. But there's obviously the other side of this, in simple terms, the, the unitary patent. Um, so Dave, can you just give us a, a kind of an overview of the the basic, the the procedure, well, you know, the, involved in getting a, a unitary patent, and, and what to, what 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 countries does it cover? Sure. Um, Procedurally, the unitary patents is not a difficult thing to obtain because you carry on as you always do now with the European Patent Office route. The only thing that changes is what happens after grant. Um, the existing procedure after grants for a European patent is that you validate in whichever countries you choose within three months and there's translations involved and it's, it's, it can be quite a costly procedure if you're going ahead in the maximum number of countries, which is some in the region of 38. Um, when the unitary patent becomes available, we know that the very first unitary patents will cover at least 17 EU countries. Um, it could go higher, and, it, and it, we hope it, certainly that it will go higher in due course once more countries join the system, but initially it will be 17 countries. And that'll include big hitters like France, Germany, and the Netherlands. Um, there's a slight difference in the procedure in that you have to prepare a translation and you have to do this within one month of grant. So that everything's brought a little bit forwards in time. But that's the only real difference for those countries that aren't covered by the unitary patents, like uh, the UK, Spain is not in there, um, Switzerland, any, anywhere outside the EU like Turkey, those aren't covered. Those you have to cover with the normal national validation route. So the three month period still applies there. Translations are needed and, and, and fees are needed. But there's quite a considerable cost saving if 
you are the sort of patent holder that likes to validate in a lot of countries because there's only one translation needed. Um, and the choice of language, uh, it's if you're filing in English, then you have any EU language to choose from. So if you have a European patent that's prosecuted in English and you're already validating in Spain, your Spanish translation is good enough. OK, yeah, so I think yeah, there, there, there are definite cost savings there and moving into, say, the, the pros and cons, you know, what are they? The pros really do come down to cost uh, at, at all stages. There's the cost on the validation side, which means uh, greatly reduced translation burden, greatly reduced official fees. You, you don't need foreign agents in all the countries. So there's, a, there's an instant saving there. And throughout the lifetime of the patent, there's also savings in terms of renewal fees. And the renewal fees that have been calculated for unitary patents roughly equate to four countries worth of fees. So if you would normally validate in four countries or more that are covered by the unitary patent, there's a good chance of a cost saving for you here. Um, as I say, UK is not covered, Spain is not covered. So quite a lot of our clients do tend to pick three, maybe five countries, UK, France, Germany, Spain and Italy. They probably fall the wrong side of the line for a fee saving, to be perfectly frank. Um, but for anybody that wants more than those main five countries, there probably is a, an excellent cost saving throughout the lifetime of the patent. Um, there's also obviously the benefits that if you choose to enforce and you're successful, you will get a pan-European injunction across that, all of those yeah. EU states. And that's because I guess if you've got a unitary patent, it's unavoidable. <clears throat> well, the, the unified patent court is, is unavoidable, isn't it? There's no opting out you, you know, a unitary patent. They're, they're, they're in whatever, aren't they? That's right. It's, it, it only goes through the, the unified patent court for enforcement or for revocation. Uh, that's another good point, actually. The In terms of revocation, your patent that arises out of the EPO is still vulnerable to an opposition at the EPO, mm. regardless of how you validated it nationally. That nine-month period still applies. Anybody can seek central revocation across all 38 countries. And we, think, we, yeah. we certainly expect uh, opponents to keep using that route because it covers all 38 countries, it'll it'll revoke the patent potentially, even if it's a UP and even if it's validated in Spain and UK. I think that I think that is key. And it, it is, as you said earlier, the UP isn't this strange mystical beast that's kind of come out of the mist and there's there's no no real knowledge about it. It's basically what you have now, a, a European patent up until the point of grant and including the opposition period. And it's really what happens beyond that that's new. And I think those that are familiar with the the classic, the, the, the current system of getting a European patent, it won't be that different, will it at all? No, not at all. It, it The procedure out to grant is completely unchanged. There's no new designation fees or anything like that. Um, it's the procedure after grant that's different and really the pros come down to a cost saving the cons come down to having a single patent that's for the for its lifetime can be revoked in total so it, that the whole thing can die at the uni, unified patent course in 10 years time at least within i guess the countries that are a member of the the well the, the upc if you've yes. got a say, separate uk patent that would be safe right 
interesting point. Yes, if the if the UPC decides to revoke the patent, what will actually happen is that the the unitary patent designation dies. Now, whether that decision carries any weight beyond the UPC countries will depend on those courts in, say, the UK and Spain. But to be fair, they probably will give it quite a bit of weight. Mm. We're still yet to find out about that. Um, well, I suppose but, that comes but, back to what Graham was saying. It's such an unknown about how this, these courts are going to make their decisions and the ramifications down the line, both for revocation and 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 say injunctions and the like. We could talk endlessly about how they might be hearing evidence and hearing from witnesses and so forth. So, yes, a UK court could come to a very different conclusion from a UPC on infringement or validity. We just don't know. OK, and just as a as a, almost an umbrella, an umbrella topic that I'm sure some some listeners will be thinking about. You know, patents are they're a piece of property, they're bought, sold, and most importantly, they're licensed amongst companies. And that's often very important for the way that companies make their their money commercial decisions yeah are there any licensing considerations here will the 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 sort of the birth of the up the upc change change what needs to be done in relation to licenses dave have you got any thoughts on this it, certainly um it, it it very much does change things both for existing licenses and for any agreements that you're trying to sign in the future um the the opt out question is immediately in my mind at this point because it may be that the patentee is quite happy to leave the patent vulnerable to central revocation at the UPC, but the licensee isn't. Now, the licensee would prefer an opt-out in those circumstances, but maybe doesn't have any control to file that opt-out because they're not the patent holder. I mean, you, you can also see the converse position arising when uh, the licensee doesn't want an opt-out, but the patent holder does. But maybe the patent holder is obliged through the terms of their license agreement to consult with their licensee and come to an agreement with them over how a big decision like this should be made. So anybody who's a, a party to one of these agreements needs to be careful and you know take a good look at their agreements and, and make sure they're not treading on anybody's toes and not withholding rights from people when they make decisions to opt out or not opt out. Yeah, a second quick question is, do the existing licenses that you have adequately cover and allow for the existence of a unitary patent in the first place? They probably only refer to European patents by name. They may refer to protection by country, but a unitary patent is quite different. There's also going to be jurisdiction clauses in, in pretty much all uh, commercial agreements, and these need to be reviewed because the UPC is a brand new court. It's a brand new sort of area of jurisdiction. So everybody needs to be certain that their licenses are fit for purpose and if they're not maybe some agreement needs to be made to supplement it so i would definitely say if you're a licensee or a licensor or you're engaging with partnerships in any way like this uh, have your licenses reviewed by somebody uh, like, like the team we have here at potter clarkson who are absolutely expert in all of this to, to make sure that it's future proof for when this comes into effect in january they're certainly worth opening that that filing cabinet and pulling out the the licenses and dusting them off at least at least for a cursory view. It may more. need to some yeah. conversations. I mean, we we've been talking with uh, parties where they have multiple license agreements based on a single patent. So a certain field of technology within that patent is licensed to one company, and a different field is licensed to another company. That's still possible under the UPC, but now you have lots of people to try and keep happy, and if 
they want different outcomes for the opt-out question. Some difficult questions and difficult conversations may need to be had. Yeah, it's one of, one of many things for, for people to consider. So I've obviously covered a lot of ground today. If our listeners are going to take home some key points, um, what do we think they are? I think for me, one point would be thinking about what Graham said. The decision about opting out isn't an easy one. We, we, you know, people do need to to start thinking about about this now. Really, um, Graham, what what would your take home message be? Um, well, I absolutely agree with the opt out strategy point, Rich. Um, and bear in mind as well that you don't. It's not something you want to leave to the last minute to the end of the sunrise period because it may well be that the IT systems at the UPC will become swamped in the last week with yeah. everyone trying to opt out their patents. And if people are trying to opt out three or four thousand patents at a time, you could quite quickly see that the IT systems could become swamped. So really, you want to be thinking about it sooner rather than later. Um, also start thinking about how you want to use the unitary patent. Do you want to use it or do you want to continue with national uh, European national validations? Um, bearing in mind that European national validations um, will also at some point come under the, the UPC. Do you want to think about national patent applications as well, filing national patent applications in certain territories so that they will always be outside of the UPC? There's a lot of strategic consideration, certainly. And and Dave, lastly, what what, what would your take home be? Both of those. <laughs> the question <laughs> about the UPC and unitary patent, absolutely. In addition to that, I would certainly say thinking about your licenses. It's the sort of question that is not always discussed, it's not always thought about, but so many of these agreements are fundamental to how businesses work and they sit in the background, never to be thought about again. It's just worth casting your eyes over those to make sure they're, they're all in order. Great points. We'll end it there. So Dave, Graham, thanks so much for your time. Um, Thank you, Rich. Thanks, no, Rich. No problem. And thanks to, to the listeners for tuning in. Uh, this has been the Innovation Game, a podcast by the IP law firm Potter Clarkson. You can hear this on SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube. And for more information about Potter Clarkson, um, visit www.potterclarkson.com. And on there, we've got the UP and UPC hub, which will hopefully provide a bit more of a deeper dive into the issues that we've discussed today. Thank you for listening.